I've got, um, I've got something to confess to you today. Uh, I'm a very difficult person to live with. In fact, I suspect that there is no one in the world who is harder to live with than me. Um, I know that not because Susie, my wife, told me. I'm sure she'd never dream of saying such a thing. Um, it's because God has told me. And I'm afraid to say he says pretty much the same thing about you. And we've been looking over the last few weeks at different pictures that the Old Testament gives us of the cross. Um, in his wonderful wisdom, the Lord God has given us, um, over the course of thousands of years of the history of Israel, lots of different pictures, different illustrations of what he achieved on that first Easter. I guess what he did there was so wonderful, so all-encompassing, that he needed many, many different pictures so that we could start to get a handle on what he's achieved. And today we're looking at the last little series, Leviticus chapter 16, this um, amazing book. If you've ever read it cover to cover, you probably deserve a medal. We're looking at the Day of Atonement, or you may know it by its Hebrew name, um, Yom Kippur. It's on page 118 um, and 119 and 120. So um, it will help you to have the Bible open, uh, because we're looking at a few of the details um, as we go along. Um, But... uh, this awesome day, I mean, for all of the complicated details that we had as David read it to us, I guess you, you grasped that there was a real sense of kind of theatre about that day. This awesome day um, was an annual festival in the life of Israel. Um, and it, I guess along with Passover, were the two huge moments in the Jewish calendar. I, I guess in many ways they were like our Christmas and Easter. Um, and it's got a number of things to teach us, um, even at this distance of 3,000 years. And the first thing we're going to learn from the Day of Atonement is exactly where I began. It's that God finds us very hard to live with. See, the story of Exodus and then Leviticus um, makes it very clear that God wanted to live with his people. He wanted to dwell amongst them. Um, He made that clear by rescuing them. He, he, He took them out of Egypt where they were slaves and brought them to himself at Mount Sinai. He came down in fire so he could be with them. Um, he got them to build uh, this huge great tent for him, and, he, and it's called the tabernacle. Um, and this tent, this God's tent, was, was meant to be pitched right in the very heart of the Israelite camp. There should be a picture of it up on the screen. There we are. That, that's the picture of the tabernacle. Um, you can see the courtyard. It's kind of a big courtyard around the outside. Um, and then in the middle of it, a tent. Uh, the courtyard is a little bit bigger than this church building. And that sat right in the very middle of the Israelite camp. It was God's place of residence and then inside that tent in the middle was divided up into two rooms it's up there behind me again the first part of that tent was was like an entrance lobby Um, but the second room the second room was what it was really all about it was a 15 foot cube and that was where the ark of the covenant was kept you probably see a little picture of it just there and the two tablets of the ten commandments that had been given to moses on mount sinai were kept inside the ark And God said, that is the very focus of my presence amongst you. That is where I'm going to dwell. Right in the very heart of my people. See, that tabernacle, that tent, in a very real sense, was God's house where he lived. And every morning, as the Hebrews got up and kind of stretched into their morning ablutions, or whatever they did, they would see this huge tent poking up up above all of the others. And it would say to them loud and clear, God's with you. God's in the middle of you. God wants to be with you. That's what this is all about. But there's a problem. See, God found them and us very hard to live with. And the reason was simple. It was because of sin. 
Now, that may come as something of a surprise to you. It certainly did to me when I first heard this. I found myself saying something like, well, I, 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 know, I know I'm not a perfect person, uh, but my friends like me. They can put up with me. Um, they can live with me without too much trouble. Actually, I quite like me. I can live with me without too much trouble. What's God's problem? Why can't God live with me? Well, God's problem, if we can put it like that, is that he's holy. And that point had been brought home to Aaron, the high priest, in a very painful way. And it's referred to right at the start of our chapter today. It's the context, actually, for the whole teaching on the Day of Atonement. Chapter 16, verse 1, on page 118. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. See, this instant is referring back to what happened in chapter 10. In chapter 10, just a few chapters earlier, uh, we read Aaron's sons... Nadab and Abihu took their censers, these kind of bowls to, to put the sharp the, um, coals in it, put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorised fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. It's being underlined for us, isn't it? It was contrary to God's command. So here's Aaron's sons, and they're pretty chuffed of themselves. Um, they've suddenly found out that purely because of their dad, they've become celebrities overnight. They've got access right into God's tent and they're strutting around like the big men on campus that they've become. And then they decide, well, maybe it's time for a show. Maybe we could do a little show for the people here. Maybe we'll go and offer some incense. That would be a nice little thing to please the people. Except it didn't quite go as they expected. Verse 2. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said... Among those who approach me, the priests, those who have got the real privilege, I will show myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honoured. See, Moses is saying to Aaron, look, Aaron, God told you this. God told you that with the privilege came huge responsibility. If you were going to have this privilege of approaching God, you had to realise that it was about him and not about you. Moses is saying, Aaron, what have you done? And we read that Aaron remained silent. Well, he would, wouldn't he? He'd just seen his sons die in the fire of a holy God. What's going on? Well, the message is pretty clear, isn't it? God is holy. God cannot just accept us in our sinfulness. Maybe our friends can, maybe we can. But God can't, because he's holy. God finds us very hard to live with. I understand that the, uh, the Waterford Crystal Factory... Um, in Ireland, has a room um, that you can go to even on the tour, apparently, which is called the Blowing Room. And in the centre of it are two huge furnaces which are fired up to temperatures in excess of 1,400 degrees. It's enough to completely consume a human being if they happen to come too close to it. And the craftsmen who use these furnaces to shape and blow the glass into these beautiful shapes, the craftsmen approach these furnaces with awesome respect. They know the dangers involved with their work and they take extraordinary care as they approach and then work with the red-hot molten crystal as they form these works of art. They know that one wrong move would be the last move. Well, that's a bit of the picture that the Bible gives us of the Lord God. He's, he's a holy God. He cannot just dwell with sinful people. He'd consume them, as Aaron discovered. That is why, 16 verse 2, back on page 118, 
That is why the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place. It's not up to him. Uh, not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. Why? Because I appear in the clouds over the atonement cover. See, God wants to dwell in the midst of his people. But here's the problem. No one can go in to see him. Or rather, one man on one day, once a year, can go in. And when he does, the instructions for how he can go in are the kind of thing that you'd expect to get if you were, if you were going into a nuclear reactor to serve as the fuel rods and the power's still on. I mean, these instructions are extraordinary. The high priest has to create an incense cloud in the room, which is so thick that he, he can't see what he's doing, just so he doesn't catch a glimpse of the very place where God, God is dwelling. See, God is holy. He wants to live with us, but he can't. He's unapproachable. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, God's justice stands forever against the sinner in utter severity. The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the conscience of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes disregarded. As responsible human beings, we dare not so trifle with our eternal future. So that's the first thing the Day of Atonement teaches us. It's very clear, isn't it? God finds us very hard to live with. He finds us hard to live with because of our sin and because of the consequences of our sin. Fortunately, however, that's not the only thing that we're to learn from this extraordinary day in Leviticus 16. Our second point, God has dealt with the problem. God has dealt with our sin. Now, there are all kinds of aspects of the Day of Atonement, which it would be great to look at, but this evening we're going to focus just on two animals, uh, the two goats that are right at the very heart of this ceremony, and we're going to let them teach us uh, how God has dealt with sin, how he's dealt with the problem that makes it so very hard for him to live with us. So first, we're going to look at the sacrifice goat, and we're going to dive in at verse 15. So there's been um, some preliminary preparations, and then we're told that he, Aaron the high priest, shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people, and take its blood behind the curtain, and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover, and in front of it. You may have noticed as it was being read, as David read the passage for us, that that the whole day is, is literally dripping with blood. Aaron throws blood within the inner chamber. And that's the most holy place. And then he throws blood in the holy place itself. That's the, kind of the lobby area. And then he comes out and sprinkles blood again on the altar, which is in the middle of the courtyard. There's blood flying everywhere. What's the point of it? Well, we're told in verse 16. In this way, he, Aaron, will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. So far this evening, I guess we've used the word atonement lots. Uh, we've never actually explained there what it meant. Um, so you might be forgiven for wondering what exactly the Day of Atonement is about. Well, the two goats give us the answer. Atonement is how God deals with our sin. Or to be precise, it's how God deals both with our sin and with the consequences of our sin. How God deals with sin and guilt that sin produces. 
In short, it's how God deals with the two reasons he finds us so hard to live with. And the blood does half of that. And actually, in the next chapter, God explains exactly why it can do half of that. See, chapter 17, verse 11. I'll read that. It'll be on the screen behind me. God God explains why blood is so significant. He says this, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. See, the blood makes atonement for one's life. Sin means that my life should be forfeit before God. Um, I've, I've broken God's holy laws. I've offended his holy majesty. Um, and his word has always been clear that the soul that sins will die, that the wages of sin is death. We can have no part in God as sinful people. God is right to demand our lives. But blood can make atonement. Blood can deal with the guilt. Why? Well, because the life of a creature is in the blood. And so God says that when I see the blood of an animal, I know that a life has been taken. A life has been paid. When I see the blood poured or sprinkled onto an altar in the way that I've told you I will accept it, then I will recognise that that animal has been a substitute that it has died in the place of the guilty person. God says, the blood says to me that a price has been paid. God's wrath that ought to fall on our sin is turned aside. The uh, the technical term is that it's been propitiated. Atonement has been made. See, the blood of the goat on the Day of Atonement dealt with the consequence of sin. It got rid of the guilt that the people of Israel had before a holy God. So you can imagine the scene, can't you? You can imagine the hundreds of thousands of Israelites crowded on the hillsides around the tabernacle. They're craning to get a view of this solitary man as as he does some business in the courtyard and then disappears into the tent, a place they've never been inside. And then they wait. And they know that if he doesn't emerge, it's game over. If... Aaron is consumed by God inside that tent well then he's not managed to make atonement if Aaron never emerges then they cannot continue to live with God in their presence and they wait and they wait and then the curtain door twitches and he steps out and relief sweeps across the people because they know that while the blood has been used to deal with the guilt of the people. They know it's done. That God has been propitiated. That atonement is made. It's done, or at least it's half done. Because it's time now to look at the second goat. So the second goat, the scapegoat. We still use the word today for someone who takes the blame for another person. And this actually is where the word comes from. And this goat shows us the second half of what atonement's about. So verse 20. Chapter 16, verse 20. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. Do you get what's going on? So the high priest brings his goat and he confesses the sin. And so in a sense he transfers the whole of Israel's sin onto this poor goat. That's quite a burden, isn't it? 
all of Israel's sin. And then we read, he shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat, here it is, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place. Literally, it means a place of cutting off. And the man shall release it into the desert. It's a brilliant picture, isn't it? This goat carries Israel's sin far away to a land that's cut off from them. And so it gives them the second part of the atonement. See, the first goat dealt with the effect of sin, the guilt, the fact they should be punished. The second goat dealt with the sin itself. It took the sin far away. So as God looked at them, he didn't even see their sin. And the result? The result is that God's people can spend another year atoned for in relationship with their God, at one with him. That's what the word means, atone, at one with God. See, the day of atonement shouted loud and clear to Israel, God has dealt with your sin. God can live with you. That's why I guess it was a party. But the thinking Hebrew would have a few questions about the second point. See, she or or he would would surely wonder whether the blood of a goat was, was actually sufficient to pay for a human being's sin. She'd wonder why it keeps needing to be repeated. I mean, just imagine you're in a boat and you're rowing away, but every few hours you have to stop rowing, put down the oars to bail water out. Now, when you finish bailing and the bottom of the boat is dry again, you could be relieved. You could be relieved because you think, well, actually, um, I'm not going to sink. I can carry on rowing. But actually, the fact that you keep having to stop every few hundred metres to bail again is actually a pretty depressing thought. Because if you think about it, it tells you that you've got a leak and that for all your bailing, you're not dealing with the real problem and that in the end, probably, the leak will win. Well, in a sense, that's the deal with the Day of Atonement. See, Israel could be relieved that that atonement had been made, but actually it was a depressing thing because the fact they kept having to do it time and again was a yearly reminder that actually sin hadn't truly been dealt with. It was an ongoing problem. It was a leak in their boat that would ultimately take them to the bottom of the sea. But God says he's dealt with sin. So what's going on? Our final point. Good Friday... It's the true day of atonement. You see, that annual sacrifice, that that year-after-year process, was actually pointing ahead to the great day when God would finally deal with sin and with the consequence of sin. Hebrews 9, verse 24 tells us, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Friends, what Jesus did 2,000 years ago 
at that first Easter, what he accomplished is so profound, so wonderful, that he fulfilled every single aspect of the Day of Atonement in himself. He, he was the great high priest who made the atonement. Uh, we'll see later he was the curtain that cut off the way into the inner room. But in particular, for us this evening, he was the sacrifice goat. He became that goat whose blood was shed because he offered his own, his own perfect, his own precious, his own divine blood to pay the price for our sins. He died in our place. He took away our guilt. But that's not all. You see, Jesus also became the true, the perfect scapegoat who, in the words of Hebrews 9, did away with sin. He carried our sin far away in, into a land of cutting off, I guess, into the depths of hell. And then he emerged triumphant on that first Easter Sunday, like the great high priest coming out of the tabernacle. And we all knew atonement had been made. It had been done once for all. So friends, if you come to God through Jesus Christ, then every sin you have ever committed has been dealt with. Every sin, every single one, from the biggest to the smallest, has been paid for, fully and finally. It's been paid for and it's been taken away from you. I guess you've heard that many times, but this Easter, have you let it grab your heart again? every sin, even, even the deepest, darkest sins. That thing that's on your conscience that, that you would never confess, that you would never dream of even telling your closest friend because you're too ashamed. Well, in Christ, it's been dealt with fully and finally. When God looks at you, he doesn't see it. Does that thrill you? Do you, do you let the joy of it wash over you? Have you found that that's rewired your heart so that you look at life and yourself and other people and God and the future differently? I guess all of us here uh, will have things on our conscience that wears down, but, but there may be some who have very heavy burdens. Maybe, maybe some here have indulged in, in greed or in lust, and, and you know that your, your selfishness has, has ruined maybe your own life or maybe the lives of those you love. Maybe you've done things or, or put pressure on someone else to do things that you're deeply ashamed of. Maybe, maybe some here look back to moments of, of real cowardice and failure. Maybe, maybe most mornings you wake up with a sense of regret and, and you find your, yourself thinking, what, what if? Like, what, what if I'd made the right choice that day? Well, friend, if that's you, then, then hear today the promise of God. Because of the first Easter, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. It is finished. Whatever you've done, whatever you thought, whatever you said, God does not condemn you. So don't condemn yourself. Don't let other people condemn you. Don't listen to the devil when he tries to put the knife in and condemn you. God has dealt with your sin. He's dealt with your guilt. And when you find that you're condemning yourself, when you're saying to God, 
God, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so dirty, I'm so guilty. I feel so unworthy. Well, God says to you, it's been done, it's been dealt with. The blood of my son was shed for you, it's been paid in full. There's nothing left to pay. When you say, I feel so unclean, I feel, I feel like I'm a hypocrite to call you father. God says, your sin's been taken far away. I've buried it in the depths of the sea. I've buried it in the depths of hell. That is where my son took it. My child, it's not coming back. When I look at you, I see a perfect child. Your sin has been dealt with once and for all. What does that mean? Do you remember on that first Good Friday? At the moment that Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two. That huge no-entry sign that stood for centuries. That, that door that, that one man, once a year, uh, from one country in the whole world, was allowed to go through, and even then, pretty much with his eyes shut. On that first Good Friday, God tore that curtain down. And God said, look, access to my presence now is open. See, the Day of Atonement says to us loud and clear, God finds you very hard to live with. In his holiness, he should consume you. But Good Friday says atonement's been made. I love you. I want to live with you forever. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let's pray. Father God, we enjoy a privilege because of Jesus that the Jewish nation could, could never dream of. Because of Jesus, we, we enjoy a privilege that, that a high priest would think was nearly blasphemous to say that we could be in your presence. We could have free and bold, unhindered access to you. We thank you that you've done that for us. Help us, Lord, this week, this year, to enjoy that privilege, to continue to be amazed that you have dealt with our sin, to revel in what it means to be forgiven, clean before you, knowing the confidence and the security that comes because of that great thing that Jesus did for us on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We thank you for that, Lord. Amen.